0: Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hausman. I am an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I will be your host for today's interview. And I'm very excited today to be joined by Allison Rose Jefferson. Dr. Jefferson is an independent historian and is a heritage conservation consultant. She currently serves as the scholar in residence with the Institute for the Study of Los Angeles at Occidental College, and beginning this coming September, she will be the guest scholar in residence at the Getty Conservation Institute. And we're going to discuss her latest book, Living the California Dream, African American Leisure Sites During the Jim Crow Era, which came out just last year in 2020, the university of nebraska press welcome to the show welcome to the new books network today allison
1: and hello uh thank you so much for inviting me uh stephen to participate in the program
0: yeah we're excited to have you um we always like to begin on the show by just hearing a bit about the guests themselves so tell us about yourself what's your background how did you become interested in history
1: well i have Always been interested in history since I was a child, and that may sound um, a little cliche, but it's true. <laughs> I was around a lot of adults when I was growing up, and uh, they used to take me to all kinds of events uh, that had uh, history-making uh, consequences, as well as uh, events that were about current. Uh, they were events that were about current events. Uh, that had history-making consequences, that would be the better way to put it, as well as to all kinds of cultural programs. As an adult, I always, um, before I became a historian, before I went back to school to to get this PhD uh, to be a historian and write this book, I had worked in other fields, uh, but I was always doing research, and I was always learning about um, uh, things uh, to do with with history and contemporary culture. And one day after several experiences working uh, in the cultural fields of uh, art and music and also uh, working with um, uh, uh, historical, uh, historic buildings, I decided to get a master's degree in heritage conservation from the University of Southern California. Um, and then I was working on a thesis to do with one of the sites that I cover in my book, um, my master's thesis project, uh, Lake Elsinore. And I worked in, uh, I went to work for a heritage conservation firm, Historic Resources Group. And while I was there uh, doing that work in heritage conservation, looking at buildings and preserving the past and the stories associated with those buildings. I realized that I wanted a broader platform to work, uh, uh, to work in from the standpoint that there were many stories that I wanted to tell about African American heritage that were not necessarily tied to a physical structure, tangible heritage. They weren't tied to uh, material integrity uh, in terms of architecture. And so that was what inspired me to go back and get a uh, PhD in history from the University of California, Santa Barbara. And um, as I uh, was doing my coursework and thinking about American history in the broader sense of um, what American history is, I still uh, 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 moved forward in terms of learning about the African-American experience in California around places um, that I had uh, uh, begun to look at when I was working on my master's degree in uh, heritage conservation and that is what evolved um, uh, into the book, Living the California Dream, African-American leisure sites during the Jim Crow era. There's just so many stories that are out there and they're not all tied to buildings and so uh, uh, going into uh, another phase of being a historian um, was the, <clears throat> the best of all possible worlds for me. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm curious about the conservation work that you do because, uh, um, you know, often uh, I have historians on the podcast who most of their job is, is you know, teaching classes and going to faculty meetings and writing books. And, and I don't talk to, uh, on the show to many people that do the kind of conservation work that, that you do. And you mentioned that you're interested in places in particular, as opposed to kind of architectural conservation. Could you talk a little bit about that kind of distinction? And in the book, you use the phrase a lot, placemaking, which I really liked as a concept. Could you tell us a bit more about that and how it uh, fits into your larger work as a conservation historian?
1: So in terms of this particular project, um, uh, uh, the Living the California Dream um, project, it is about reinserting the African-American experience in places throughout Southern California. And um, I don't consider myself... Um, what did you call me? Uh, What did you, you called me a, a a, a, something, conservation conservation historian. historian. I don't necessarily consider myself a conservation historian. Okay. um, Okay. But um, um, uh, I am a heritage conservation consultant and heritage conservation is in the broader sense of the word um, uh, looking at, interpretation of place and place making uh, as well. As, and those are the social uh, looking at the social stories that make a place um, uh, as well as if there is uh, uh, a building or some other kind of structure or a landscape that can be interpreted uh, uh, at that particular place. Um, So, it's a much broader term that is used more in the worldwide uh, vernacular for what Americans generally call heritage, uh, uh, what Americans generally call historic preservation, which is very, um, very tied to architecture, to a tangible structure, and interpreting the social experience through the architectural um, form through the design. Um, And in most of the stories of placemaking that I am dealing with with this project, Living the California Dream, um, the places don't have um, uh, tangible sites. They have social stories at these sites where buildings may have been torn down, or where in terms of there's a beach site uh, in Santa Monica and there's a beach site in Manhattan Beach that I cover in the book and in in, um, a few other places in Southern California that there's no structures there to talk about what the social experience was of people coming to those sites and in some cases the beach has actually changed because there's been beach nourishment uh, campaigns Uh, uh, from the 1940s through the 1950s that widened the beach. So it's a different landscape uh, than it was when it was the heyday of African Americans hanging out, for instance, in Santa Monica at the Bay Street Beach. Um, And for that matter, even um, at Manhattan Beach in, um, um, uh, uh, in South Los Angeles County where Uh, one of the areas Bruce's Beach was located they've changed the landscape a little bit um, uh, from what it looked like when the uh, Bruce's Resort was uh, at its height between uh, uh, the first decade of the 20th century uh, first few decades of the 20th century so um, so with that um, uh, just to recap it is Looking at the social community values of a place versus looking at the place um, in terms of, of, of uh, a building and those values.
0: And what drew you to the topic of this book? It sounds like it's been a long-term project that you've been working on for quite a while, but what is sort of the genesis here? What drew you to the topic of African-American leisure sites and their memory in Southern California in particular?
1: So, my mother's family moved to Los Angeles uh, in uh, the mid nineteen twenties, and my mother and her two brothers. My mother was Marceline. Her brothers were Peter, uh, were Price and Prince, and her parents were Rosa and um, Peter uh, Price Cops. And so they uh, had their, my my grandparents had their children here, and they um, would have been folks that were living in the old east side neighborhoods of Los Angeles, and they would have been going to some of these places that I talk about in my book. And in particular, my mother had experiences with my grandparents when she was growing up, going to Lake Elsinore. She and her brothers and my grandmother, my grandfather was dead by the time I was um, uh, born. Um, They on occasion would talk about this experience of going to Lake Elsinore. And they also took us uh, on a family outing where um, all of us, my cousins, my grandmother, my uncles and aunts, we went to Lake Elsinore uh, to hang out at the lake in the 60s. And it was right after they had stabilized the water. And, and it was a really a very fun family trip. And it was one of the few family trips that we took like that where we hung out for a day where we weren't at somebody's house. And um, so I had that kind of bug in my brain about the place then and then at another time in the late 60s, we went out to Lake Elsinore again to visit um, a distant cousin who lived out there. And so I always was interested in knowing more about the experience, but at that, as a college student and uh, in my early working career, I didn't really have any reason to learn more about it, particularly at that point in time. But then when I became a graduate student working on my master's degree, I had to come up with some paper topics. And so um, uh, I thought, oh, well, let me look at this Lake Elsinore area. I've always wanted to know more about it. And so that's how I came to thinking about the topic uh, uh, when I was working on my master's degree and I learned about these other places that I cover in the book at that time as well and when I started working on my master's degree in 2003 and I finished in 2007, I didn't realize that I was going to go on to get a PhD. I thought I was going to get the master's degree and then I was going to work in heritage conservation for the duration of my career or historic preservation. And and so I, I did a cursory paper where I explored all of the um, African-American leisure sites and then some that I cover in my book in a class that I took with uh, uh, Kevin Starr, who uh, many of your listeners will know was the, one of the deans of, uh, California history and he wrote the books, the California the dream series of several books that covered the history of uh, California from the late 1800s until, uh, uh, the, uh, until the end of the 20th century. And so I took this class with him and I when I was searching around for the uh, my um, paper topic for his class, I went to him with this idea about these leisure sites and I went to him with another idea of looking at um, uh, uh, the Mission Inn and, um, and Frank um, oh. I'm spacing on the guy's name who was the uh, proprietor of that building but he was an entrepreneur and he was very creative in terms of uh, developing that um, hotel and I was interested to know a little bit more about him and so um, I went to start with these two ideas, look at the mission Inn and look at these leisure sites. And he was like, ah, everybody's done something on the mission Inn, but these leisure sites and the African-American experience, nobody's done much on, uh, nobody's done anything on that. And I don't know anything about that. You should, you should, uh, you know, write about that. So that was my uh, encouragement to pursue the direction from someone who I, you know, I, I, I love his work and he was a great, uh, for me, he was a great teacher, a uh, great professor, and he died uh, unfortunately before the book came out, but he knew I had gotten to the PhD uh, level and had gotten the dissertation. Uh, uh, I think he, died. I can't remember when he died right now, whether I was in progress on the PhD or whether it was done, but he didn't know that the book came out. I'll just I'll just say that, and so uh, he uh, he helped to you know encourage me to think about the work from the standpoint of something that um, people didn't know about, and I, I had an inkling at that point in time that I wanted to do uh, research on something that was going to be meaningful to me, that's, um, that's not the inkling, but I wanted to do research on something that was going to be meaningful to me. And my inkling was, you know, I don't wanna just do a paper just to do a paper to satisfy my requirements. I want to do a paper that is going to have some sort of longevity in terms of things that I might revisit. Uh, in terms of expanding what work I had done on it. Now, I didn't know that I was going to get a Ph.D., uh, but, you know, that was kind of in the back of my mind. And while I was in graduate school, um, uh, working uh, the first time, working on the master's degree, uh, my professor and advisor, Ken Breisch in Heritage Conservation, suggested to me that I look at a PA, getting a PhD when he was reading my initial drafts of my thesis and I th- he said go talk to the people in the history department and uh, and and uh, in American Studies at, at at USC and I did but I was like I have to finish this <laughs> I have to finish this uh, master's thesis and get this degree. I can't be thinking about a PhD. And they were so disorganized at that point in terms of the departments because they were, you know how at different times your departments are having turnover and they're reevaluating programs and and what have you. And so it just wasn't necessarily a good time for somebody like me (laughs) to be talking to a department. So I went on and got a job with uh, historic resources group, but those are the things that, you know, initially um, got me to the topics and, and, you know, doing the research initially, I then began talking to various um, individuals in the African-American community whose families had been in Los Angeles as long or longer than my grandparents had been here. And then I was learning lots of information from them. And then they were showing me photographs and sharing other um, tidbits of information that I hadn't seen in public archives before. And I really um, was engaged with learning about this history. And I knew something about um, Los Angeles uh, history, but I certainly didn't know as much as I have learned, uh, as much as I learned in those early years of graduate school. And at that time also, there were a few books that had come out that were more contemporary books about the African-American experience in terms of the music scene and Doug Flaming had done his book in 2005, Bound for Freedom. Um, And so there was, and then in terms of Santa Monica, Paula Scott had done a book about Santa Monica, uh, uh, which was more expansive in terms of looking at um, uh, a fuller experience of what the Santa Monica history was, including Communities of color and other marginalized uh, groups. And so it was kind of at uh, an intersection of my interests and things that were going on in the broader um, uh, uh, realm of academic scholarship that um, maybe uh, were working around in my subconscious to engage me to. To, to help me to push forward uh, eventually to getting the PhD.
0: <laughs> and I think that's that's good advice for anyone looking to write a book is you know uh, write about something that you care about. like uh, the, 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 the topic will go from there, but it sounds like you started with something that you were interested in and it just it just ha- it just went from there. and that, I think that, that's, that's, that seems like good advice for anyone looking to, to write a, a long long term large scale project like this.
1: Well I would think so and and it's funny in terms of us having this conversation because in the last couple of years, there have been a few things that have been presented to me and um, I have thought, oh well, that would be kind of interesting to you know look at And then after I started doing the research uh, for preliminary proposals, I realized that I wasn't intellectually engaged enough with mm-hmm. the the material and emotionally engaged enough with the material that mm-hmm. I really wanted to uh, continue with it. And I just was with a uh, talking with a friend yesterday, a scholarly colleague, and she got roped into doing this project. And she said, "I should have never told them I would do this." <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: it has to hold your attention for many years, and if it's not going to do that, it'll just you know it'll 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 wear you out.
1: Yes, yes, I, I I'm with you there. <laughs>
0: Well, let's get into the book uh, a little bit, and why don't we begin, just as you do in the book, by just setting the context. Tell us about California, and specifically about Southern California in the early 20th century. I'm curious about this idea of the California dream as you describe it, and just kinda in a broader sense, what life was like in Southern California, in particular for African American Californians during the Jim Crow era.
1: Well, California, And Los Angeles, Southern California in general, were really areas that were developing uh, in the 20th century uh, uh, rather than the 19th century. I mean, there were people here in the 19th century, but the train didn't get here until the uh, 1880s in terms of Los Angeles area. It was in San Diego first and then Los Angeles, and it had been in, um, uh, the train had come to San Francisco earlier, and San Francisco and the Bay Area was where the gold rush was, and so that's where many people were first attracted to uh, coming to California during the American period. Now, there were uh, people during the Spanish and Mexican period all over California but they were really in small numbers and Los Angeles was the center of um, the frontier at at that point in time and and so in terms of the 20th century this area then uh, got the train and uh, it became the hub of life uh, uh, for the region and for African Americans, it also became the hub of life. It became the population center uh, for the the general population, and it became the largest population center for African Americans in the West and one of the two largest population centers in California. and the other one was the Bay Area. And then the third one would have been San Diego. And so with that, African-Americans, just like whites were moving to Southern California for the climate, um, for the beautiful landscape and new life opportunities. And with those new life opportunities, they were looking to invest in real estate. And then African-Americans also were looking to uh Uh, move here to escape uh, the worst of the Jim Crow era black um, uh, racist restrictions. There was much more freedom that they uh, were able to have here in California, even though there was still discrimination in California. And one of the things that helped to lessen the discrimination was that um, California had civil rights laws that were on the books uh as early as the um uh, as 1893 even if they weren't always enforced so that helped and folks could buy property here uh black people could buy property here their children could um, go to school more easily than in other places and so it made for uh uh, a place that some people wanted to come. Now, it was a long way for a lot of people to get to Los Angeles. You had to have a little money to get here because uh, it wasn't an established um, uh, route uh, of, of people coming uh, to migrate. There wasn't a lot of industry here. Most of the jobs that African-Americans were getting um, were uh, in the urban service kinds of jobs. So it would have been, um, you know, low level, um, uh, 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 low level uh, maintenance and and uh, servant jobs, and then also low level jobs in terms of labor. And then there were some professionals here, uh, doctors and lawyers, and um, uh, small businessmen were able to establish businesses, and a few. Um, large businesses uh, got established. Some of them uh, lasted through the end of the um, uh, through the early decades of the 21st century. And then um, w- there were many people that were able to buy their own homes, as I said, buy property, but they also were able to buy uh, other pieces of property within you know their means. and that helped to uh, build uh, some wealth, because everyone was a real estate speculator uh, uh, then, as now, <laughs> uh, you know, many people are still speculating in real estate in terms of uh, their home and other pieces of property. And uh, this is a place that, as uh, then in the early twentieth century, as it is today, is still some place that a lot of people want to uh, move to because they like the weather for one and they're interested in the employment opportunities that um, have um uh, developed uh uh over the the last 100 years um so so it was it was a better place to be for many people and by 1918 uh, los angeles had established uh, a community where they were able to uh, with some of their multi-ethnic neighbors, elect the first African American to the assembly in 1918, that was Frederick Madison Roberts. And that seat um, has still remained um, held by an African American, even to this day. And, uh, uh, and so that was uh, something that was encouraging people to come here as well. The jazz scene was um, uh, uh, blooming because the movie industry was here. Uh, uh, African-American musicians were able to get jobs playing uh, in the films. And there were a few opportunities for African-American actors and actresses. There were a few film companies that were formed by Black people. but really in terms of the businesses that African-Americans got into, um, it was more real estate and small businesses, um, uh, restaurants, small restaurants and and beauty salons and hair salons and they were doing real estate transactions and they were in building. Uh, And then the larger businesses that got formed were Liberty Savings and Loan, which lasted through the 1960s and the Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Company. And then one business that was formed in the 1920s that's still around today is Angela's Funeral Home. And they've expanded um, uh, from uh, their original uh, funeral home business to now own a cemetery. And um, so um, those were the, the the, the, and, and, and so as people moved here, they encouraged a few other people to move here. And, um, and so Los Angeles is still the largest population center, or Southern California, uh, is still the la- largest population center of African Americans in, in the West.
0: And in the book, you talk about five or six individual leisure sites, and you have a lot of really great stories about each one in there. You talk about both the history of these places, the place process itself, and the memory of these places as well. Uh, we probably don't have time to talk about the details of every single one, but I'm hoping that you can maybe provide an overview of each of these sites that you talk about in depth in the book, and maybe we can start by talking a bit about Manhattan Beach, California and the site of Bruce's beach. What is the story of this place and what is its memory today and the the, the contestation around its memory
1: today? So Bruce's beach has captured the imagination of the globe uh, today, Um, because it was uh, an early African-American resort that began in 1912. And um, it was founded by, uh, uh a woman entrepreneur with her husband Willa Bruce with her husband Charles Bruce and it um um it was by all um uh accounts it, it became very successful um and it lasted from um the 19 uh, from 1912 to uh the 1920s and it was um it was it was a business that started out um, with pop-up tents, and then eventually got uh, a few buildings. Um, and they had a, a, a dance hall, a cafe, and uh, they had rooms to change your clothes for, um, you know, enjoying the beach. And when the business first opened, it um, it had um, contestation from the white folks that were in the area. They didn't want the black people to have this um, to have this resort. And they protested by putting up ropes in front of the property so that the people couldn't um, uh, the people visiting from Los Angeles couldn't get out onto the beach. And that was in a newspaper article in the LA Times. Um, so we know for sure that it happened. <laughs> And it's not, you know, oral history that was passed down, it's documented. And so with that, um, the business thrived until uh, 1924 uh, in a remote area of Manhattan Beach on the northern edge of um, uh, what was then the town and um, far away from where most of the other people lived part-time and full-time because at that point in time um, the area was rural and most of the people that had property down there um, uh, had cottages and they were only coming for uh, 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 weekend excursions or, you know, few weeks in the summer because um, it was a long way and there wasn't any employment down there. for most people, black or white. And so by the early 1920s, there were some folks who decided that they didn't like the fact that the black people were um, uh, uh, expanding with a small little community that was growing up around the Bruce's Resort. They didn't like the fact that there were all these visitors coming down there and they used the excuse that it was going to impact real estate values, and they said there was a Negro invasion occurring. And at this point in time, this is when you are having a population jump in terms of the growth in Southern California and the Los Angeles area of white folks as well as black folks, and you have a heightened um, um, uh, uh, activity of the uh, Ku Klux Klan around the nation, and including in California, uh, including California, even though they weren't as violent and vicious uh, in California as they were in other parts of the country. And someone was able to uh, get the city council to um, implement an eminent domain proceeding to take the land away from the small African-American community that had developed around the Bruce's Lodge and this is between 26th and 27th, and between the Strand and Highland Avenue. And um, with that, they were successful. They had the eminent domain proceedings passed um, by 1924, and um, uh, the Bruce's and the other families that were impacted by it fought um, this proceeding. But they weren't able to prevail, and they were bought out of their property. And by 1925, everything was settled. Uh, And so the white folks got what they wanted. They chased the black people out. So at that point in time, you had less than 1,000 people that were living in um, Manhattan Beach. And in terms of these African Americans that had property there, um, it was... um, it was, about, it was less than 10 families in terms of the area where the Bruce's property was, including the Bruce's, it was five families. And um, so with that, they, uh, they, they were able to get those families out and um, they tried to then hide the memory of what was going on uh, to say uh, that it was for a park and they didn't build a park until the 1950s and they tried to um, erase the memory of these African-Americans that were there. Well, fast forward um, to uh, more contemporary decades. In 2007, the park was renamed Bruce's Beach after the community uh, did some hand-wringing and um, it was proposed by the only black city councilman that has ever been in Manhattan Beach, um, that they changed the name to recognize the pioneering Bruce family uh, and the uh, area that was known as Bruce's Beach, um, and, and, and then uh, so they got that name change, and then fast forward to last year, the site became a site of consciousness and a site of uh, healing and, and pilgrimage and celebratory events with different people uh, after the murder of George Floyd and, um, uh, and the protests uh, that were happening around the country uh, uh, to do with the, the racial reckoning that the nation um, was uh, 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 going through and is still going through. And with that, the city of Manhattan Beach was not un- uh, affected by this, and the citizens and the public officials decided to take a new look at the plaque text that was there in um, uh, 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 on the plaque recognizing the park, and then uh, a citizen who was living there uh, 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 decided with a group that she was involved in to um, to to suggest uh, she suggested that the Bruces should get their land back, and um, the group was called Justice for Bruces Beach, and that that whole idea became something that captured the imagination of. Um, county Supervisor Janice Hahn, because she had never heard about this history of Bruce's Beach before. And it turned out that the land that the Bruces had their lodge on, it was originally called Bruce's Lodge, was uh, part of her, um, the land that the county now owned uh, that was on the beachfront. And so she decided that she wanted to return the land to the Bruce's family. Um, uh, as part of her effort in racial reckoning and um, reparations. Um, And so with that, um, right now, um, that story has captured um, uh, national and global attention and the um, return of the land to the Bruce's descendants is in process from the standpoint that in order for uh, 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 Supervisor Hahn and the other uh, members of the Board of Supervisors to return this land to the Bruce family descendants, they have to uh, go through some enabling legislation with the state of California, uh, the state legislature, the, uh, the Senate and the Assembly. And so they've had to go through some committee Uh, votes in the Assembly and a full vote, I'm sorry, committee votes in the the Senate and a full vote of the Senate um, to advance this um, project and then it's now uh, in the Assembly, it's going through certain committees in the Assembly for a vote and then the full Assembly will have to vote and once uh, that and whatever other things need to occur at the state level happen to make it a law, then it'll go to uh, the uh, governor's desk and he will sign um, legislation to allow the county supervisors to give the land back to the Bruce family descendants if that's what they decide that they're going to do. And at this point, um, um, they haven't the county supervisors haven't said exactly how that land transfer would uh, occur, but they have uh, uh, had their staffs look into it and had staff reports that um, uh, were made public recently. Uh, we're now in um, mid July um, of two thousand twenty-one that were uh, were uh, so so with that. Um, we should be hearing sometime in the fall, how all this um, land transfer to the Bruce family will take place. The one thing that is a through line from the 1920s to contemporary times in Manhattan Beach is that um, uh, the racism of the era did uh, did, uh, chase out the black people. And you can see that in terms of the population numbers um, today, there are less than half a percent of, um, less than half a percent of the population in Manhattan Beach is, is African American. It's less than 200 folks uh, that uh, are in the census. So, the white folks did what they wanted to in terms of keeping black people out of Manhattan Beach. And we must also look at the legacy of this history in a broader sense. Um, Aside from the families that lost in terms of their property, uh, the the African-American community lost a social economic space for the duration of the 20th century uh, because the city was so hostile to them living there that they couldn't benefit from some of the employment opportunities that were in the Um, aerospace industry and the oil industry that were nearby there because they couldn't live in, um, you know, that community and some of the other communities down that way. Um, But um, we'll see what happens with that and um, then one of the other sites that I cover in the book is Santa Monica and Santa Monica um, has a historic African-American community that's been there since the founding of the town, Um, and uh, they initially were living in the beach neighborhoods um, south of and around where the current uh, civic center is, and there was a beach area there near Pico um, uh, and south to Bicknell that had different kinds of geographic places closer to Pico or closer to Bicknell, um, a few blocks south of Pico, depending on what particular time period you were, um, you're talking about. And so this small African-American community staked its place there. And, um, there were entrepreneurs that attempted to develop, um, uh, leisure space businesses, um, uh, for, um, the emerging black population that was growing in Los Angeles. And they would come to Santa Monica and they were challenged by various racial exclusionary measures that inhibited um, um, this economic development and also um, residential expansion. And But even with that, African Americans um, were able to maintain their beach uses because it was a public beach, even with the development that grew up around it in terms of the big white beach clubs. And they were able to maintain a small residential local community in Santa Monica that persists into the 20th century. It's not right by the beach anymore, but it does uh, persist. And there is a historic African-American church that was formed in 1906, and they got their building in 1908, uh, which is at Fourth and Bay in Santa Monica. So it's four blocks from the beach, Phillips Chapel Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. You can drive by there and you can see it. And um, so, this local African American community's uh, persistence um, has been important in the reclaiming of the memory uh, here in the 21st century uh, with various heritage conservation efforts and um, public history um, programming. And uh, this programming has been initiated by um, various citizens' groups and um, my research has been um, uh, uh, foundational to some of these programs happening. Um, The Bay Street Beach was uh, uh, listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 2019 as the Bay Street Beach Historic District, and it's the only uh, uh, historic district to be listed on the National Register in Santa Monica and its significant because of the African-American experience in American history. And it's also one of the few uh, historic districts in California that is associated with black people or any people of color. And um, the Belmar History Plus Art Project was uh, recently completed to commemorate the African-American experience in Santa Monica. with. Um, uh, an outdoor exhibition, <coughs> excuse me, with an outdoor exhibition that's in the new park and sports field area at 4th and Pico, the historic Belmar Park. Um, there's several, there's like 20 historic panels and a large sculpture by April Banks. There will, there's uh, also lesson plans that have been developed, which will be, um, Uh, available soon. There's a context essay which is um, available now. You can look at that on my website. There were community um, engagement programs that went on over the last um, over the last um, year and a half even in the virtual space and then there was also some uh, youth art um, programs that um, occurred um, as well. And um, so that's something for people to go and look at. And then another um, another um, uh, place that I explore in depth in the book is Lake Elsinore, which I mentioned earlier, which was the place that my family would go to. And this was uh, a successful, somewhat successful, residential and leisure um, destination for the the general population and for African-Americans even um, uh, 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 even in its um, marginality between uh, the 1910s to the 1960s, and it was one of the farthest inland African American um, leisure destinations that was developed um, because the lake at uh, in the area uh, had um, changing um, dynamics over over the 20th century and. Uh, there were changes in leisure tastes um, that we don't see um, the African-American entrepreneurs um, resort business um, successes today and we uh, don't see um, the presence of uh, their experience in the local history narratives and the landmark designation programs. And by not having uh, the African-American experience um, uh, in these programs, we're, uh, we're uh, 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 missing the opportunity to understand our full shared history of all of the different people that um, were involved in developing the area and um, their contributions to um, uh, building Uh, 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 California and um, and the local Lake Elsinore community and then one of the other places I look at in the book is the Park Ridge Country Club which was in Corona uh, also in Riverside County Um, Lake Elsinore is in Riverside County as well and this was a private club and leisure space that was originally um, built as um, built for a a white-only constituency, and um, uh, a group of very ambitious African-American businessmen um, purchased the site to operate as an interracial space um, and um, and an attempt at building black uh, community suburbanization, and the local white citizens were very strenuous in their objections to this new venture in um, the corona community and the, biz- the black businessmen's efforts um, to build, uh, to, to, to um, make this place a success have been left out of all the local history narratives. And so again, we're um, um, losing um, information about um, uh, 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 who was involved in developing uh, uh, the Corona community in terms of the historical actors and um, and their efforts. And then another uh, place that I look at in depth in the um, book is Eureka Villa, which later became known as Valverde. And it's in the Santa Clarita Valley area of northern Los Angeles County. And it was um, initially an African-American and... Um, white American uh, resort development um, project, and it began in the mid uh, 1920s. And um, at, at this time, there were also some other um, land development projects that were competing for um, dollars um, uh, 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 with Eureka Villa. For uh, African Americans, um, patronage and their their dollars, and in terms of Eureka Villa Valverde, um, public money contributed to making a park and a swimming pool, and multiple marketing campaigns um, uh, by both white and black um, boosters um, helped to keep this um, place. Uh, interesting for African-American consumers uh, until um, uh, the racial apartheid era ended in the 1960s and um, in contemporary times um, the Val Verde community as it's known has been reclassed as one of the last um, rural areas um, remaining where there's affordable housing in the Santa Cruz Uh, in the Santa Clarita Valley, and there's um, not a whole lot of memory about the African-American heritage there. And I look at a few other places also in the book. Um, One of the big things I am interested in people realizing about these sites is that um, uh, there were some really interesting African-American folks of all Different classes that were involved in um, using these places and attempting to develop them, and also in looking at trying to take advantage of the California dream in terms of real estate development. And in my work, I'm um, looking at reclaiming and reinserting um, these communities uh, into the regional landscape so that we have a better understanding of. Uh, the history of the area, and um, you know, having these sites get incorporated into um, public memory, because um, that's going to help to broaden um, uh, our sense of uh, as as uh, as uh, Californians and Americans broaden our sense of our identity um, here in the region, and hopefully. Uh, these uh, uh, the book and these different programs that that I've been involved in to help with um, uh, uh, the reinsertion of of this information reclaiming um, these places in terms of the African American experience will um, uh, help the communities to also realize that um, uh, these. Stories are important to think about in terms of how they are uh, developing new strategies in terms of contemporary times about um, um, how to, you know, work with different people and claiming um, civic engage in, in in developing civic engagement.
0: And as we saw with the example of Bruce's Beach as well, that often you know re re reframing these, these 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 places and telling different stories about these places and you know reinserting truths into these places, it can lead to real material change as well. And in this particular case, into the transference of actual land from one person to other people. So you know these stories really do a good job of showing how the way that we talk about place and the histories of places that it matters a great deal that it's not it, it, that that it's 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 that they it, it it changes things that and i think that, that your book does a really good job of showing that
1: yes it 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 does change things when people read the information yes and also for us as historians it the, the stories that i tell in my book Validate what we know is that the past influences the present, right? And the present will uh, the present uh, will influence the future. So the right. past has consequences for the future. I mean, for the present and the future, and um, we can't get away from that. Although some people would like to tell you, "Oh, history's worthless," <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that we know as historians is not true.
0: Yeah. So you did a great job of of going over kind of a bird's eye view of the most of the content of the book. And as I said um, earlier, there's a lot of wrinkles and smaller stories within there. So definitely go buy, buy the book and, and and read it for yourselves. But I have one more kind of final question before we, we wrap up and, and ask some, some kind of uh, uh, wrap-up questions. It's about the book itself. And one thing that I noticed is that a lot of these sites share a similar story. You have African-American leisure sites that are contested by racist white Californians. And um, And eventually these stories are are retold by white Californians about these places to be primarily white narratives about white places. Why do you think white Californians are often so reluctant to remember the actual history of these places? Why, I guess, this retelling in a way that removes the black story from these sites? Why does this keep happening in place after place like this?
1: Well, why does it happen in American history? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess that's uh, I, I kind mean, of the question, right? <laughs> it's not. It's not just uh, a problem in terms of local history that African American stories are left out of the American narrative. So, uh, it, it's it's unfortunate, but you know, the white supremacist um, values devalued the African-american experience unless it was something that was purely supporting um, uh, what they uh, w- what the white folks wanted So um, it's a problem of the American experience um, that we do not fully recognize our um, our history. It's not uh, the the contestation narrative in terms of whites contesting, black participation goes back to um, uh, the kind of value that whites are thinking black people are only laborers and should be seen and not, not heard. And, that, and whites don't wanna give up power to uh, a broader um, population. Uh, so that is something that's national, not just regional.
0: So again, kind of looking at the book as a whole, um, and I, I like to ask my guests this, and sometimes to express a little bit of frustration because it's not an easy question, but I'm curious, what is one takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book understanding? And I ask that you know, knowing that there's a lot of different takeaways that someone could come away from this book with, but what do you hope that readers come away understanding about this, about this, this topic?
1: Well, I, I hope that people take a broader look at what is American history and um, understand that in terms of these stories that I'm talking about, although they are um, revolving around places of leisure, they still have much more uh, complicated stories to tell about African-American migration, about socioeconomic um, status, about uh, human experiences that. Uh, people were having about um, uh, uh, economic development and these are the local stories uh, that contribute to a broader narrative about who we are as Americans and also to the national movement to open up recreation for everyone and these stories show that um, uh, as well uh, uh, that liberty was not just about socio-economic and political issues, but it was also about um, liberty and freedom, but it was uh, was also uh, about liberty. Uh, uh, these stories were also about, um, uh, you know, being able to have free time and do what you want with your free time. Um, So I use these leisure sites as a way to get into sharing these broader narratives in a different way than just, you know, doing a book about migration or doing a book about, um, uh, you know, black entrepreneurs
0: that's one of the things I actually really loved about this book is that even though it's, it's wrapped up in all these, these larger issues that fundamentally it's a book about people having fun or trying to have fun or wanting to have fun. And I think that's, that's an understudied topic in history is people wanting to go out and enjoy themselves, say on the beach or at a country club, for instance. And I I really, I, I appreciated that that was kind of the, the the central core of this book.
1: Well, I thank you. I'm glad (laughs) that you saw that because that was also one of the reasons that I was inspired um, by, uh, to write the book because when I was growing up, my family, my parents were divorced and we didn't go on overnight vacations where we were going to spend the night at a new place as a family, either with my mother or my father for the most part because um, Since my parents were divorced, they would take us on day trips, but they weren't, you know, taking us overnight. And I always was kind of fascinated with that because uh, there were other people around me who were doing these overnight, um, you know, vacations. Uh, Like my cousins were going different places around the country with their families, and I always wondered about that. And so in looking at these leisure sites here in Southern California, that was part of Um, my interest to tell these stories.
0: And then finally, I always like to end the show by getting a preview of what my guests are working on next. So do you have any other projects that you are starting? I know a lot of of the work that you've been talking about is ongoing, and I know that you're beginning a new position in uh, just about two months, but what are you working on next?
1: So right now, um, you mentioned I'm going to start working as a, uh, I'm going to start an opportunity as a guest scholar and residency at the Getty Institute. And I'm going to continue uh, my study of African-Americans and sites related to their experiences uh, in the coastal zone, um, particularly in Venice, California. And I'm uh, beginning a, um, I'm beginning to plan um, a new uh, exhibition around the subject matter of my book with the California African American Museum uh, at Exposition Park, at Exposition Park in Los Angeles um, that will go up in December 2022. I'm also working on uh, some youth field trips to um, some of the sites that I discuss in the book with um, uh, the Santa Monica Conservancy and Outward Bound Adventures, um, which is a youth um, uh, uh, development organization where they take kids into the outdoors. And um, there's a few other things that are kind of percolating, but those are the uh, the ones that, that are the most formed at this point in time.
0: So you're keeping busy, basically, is what I'm hearing here.
1: <laughs> I am keeping busy, yes. <laughs> and inspired.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Dr. Allison Rose Jefferson is an independent historian and heritage conservation consultant. She is currently the scholar-in-residence with the Institute for the Study of Los Angeles at Occidental College. And beginning in September, she will be the guest scholar-in-residency at the Getty Conservation Institute. And her latest book is Living the California Dream, African-American Leisure Sites During the Jim Crow Era, which came out in 2020 with the University of Nebraska Press. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Allison, and thank you for writing this book.
1: Oh, and thank you, Stephen, so much for inviting me to participate in the program.